0: Welcome to Intentional Teaching, a podcast aimed at educators to help them develop foundational teaching skills and explore new ideas in teaching. I'm your host, Derek Bruff. I hope this podcast helps you be more intentional in how you teach and in how you develop as a teacher over time. Tracy Addy has become a leading voice in higher education for the use of inclusive teaching practices. I've been following her work for a few years now, and when I saw that she and her co-authors have a new book out on inclusive teaching, I reached out to see if they could come on the podcast to talk about the project. The new book is called Enhancing Inclusive Instruction, Student Perspectives and Practical Approaches for Advancing Equity in Higher Education. And it's a sequel to their 2021 book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, Principles and Practices for Excellence in College Teaching, both from Rutledge. Tracy and her colleagues are throwing a virtual launch event for the new book on February 27, 2024. Stay tuned at the end of our conversation for details on that launch event, or just follow the link in the show notes. But first, the conversation. Tracy Addy is Associate Dean of Teaching and Learning and Director of the Center for the Integration of Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship at Lafayette College. Her co-authors on the new book are Derek Duby, Associate Professor of Biology and Director of the First Year Seminar Program at the University of St. Joseph, and Khadija Mitchell, assistant professor in the Cancer Prevention and Control Program at Fox Chase Cancer Center at Temple University. We talk about the origins of the book series, the importance of hearing student voices when practicing inclusive teaching, and how someone like me who has been practicing active learning instruction for a couple of decades might want to thoughtfully reconsider a few of his teaching practices. Thank you all for being here today to talk with me uh, about your new book. I'm very excited about this conversation. Thanks. Thanks all three of you for being here today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, y'all have a new book coming out this year um, called Enhancing Inclusive Instruction. And I gather it's a bit of a sequel to a previous book, What Inclusive Instructors Do. How did these two books come about? How did they come to be?
1: That's a great question, Derek. So I'll take this one. And I just first want to start off by saying that I'm thankful for Derek and Khadija for joining me in this journey uh, for these two books. It probably wasn't something they were thinking about before um, I proposed them. But essentially, several years ago, before we published What Inclusive Instructors Do, I had a lot of interest in thinking about how do we support instructors on inclusive teaching? And of course, as an educational developer who directs the center, I'm very keen on those questions <laughs> where I'm like, how could we develop supports and resources and things like that? At that time, there you know, wasn't as significant a push, I guess, around inclusive teaching and higher education as it expanded to uh, in the years after. And so we actually started with not a book, but a research study, and that research study Um, involved all of my colleagues here and a few others. And that particular study was really aimed at trying to address, like thinking about barriers and challenges, like of you know, instructors who are trying to do this good work, right? On equity Mm -hmm. and inclusion. So that particular study, which is published in To Improve the Academy, was kind of the beginnings of what evolved into our book stories. (laughs) So when we looked at that particular the data, all we collected so much different data in different ways. We basically found that there was a lot of rich information around what inclusive instructors do. (laughs) And so it felt very natural to put it all together and just to create like that book that we never had. As I always explain it, like when I started teaching, if I had this book, how wonderful it would be. And actually a colleague just shared with me that they shared what inclusive instructors do to someone who is new to teaching and they were very inspired by it and they had a great first teaching experience and whatnot and we hear lots of wonderful stories like that. So that book really is kind of a culmination of putting all that and synthesizing that together with my wonderful colleagues in a way that is very I think palatable for instructors. We embrace the data that we have from our study, the research and we also add in some of our perspectives, but it's it's holistic in that way. So it's what inclusive instructors do and, in, you know, all of the dimensions that we've added into that book. So the next book, Enhancing Inclusive Instruction, is really the student story. Uh, what inclusive instructors do was, you know, kind of like the instructor story. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be really great to actually get more perspectives? I mean, who would better... Ask about inclusive environments and in students, right? I mean, they really need to inform us about how we're doing this work. So then I proposed that as the next, uh, you know, study right after you know what inclusive instructors do um, was kind of you know kind of published and whatnot, and finished off, and then we endeavored to try to do a similar thing where we got voices from student of students through survey, through interview, etc. It did take a little bit more effort to get the student voices, I'll say, than the, fact, than the instructor voices, but it was wonderful to do, um, and it was wonderful to kind of see their thoughts. So that basically moved us into creating this book, which I think a lot of instructors will appreciate because it's really coming from students, and it's also, and I know that um, Khadija might talk about this a little bit more. Some of my colleagues will talk about this more later in our conversation, But it also gets at questions that we couldn't ask with what inclusive instructors do because this is purely from students. And in addition, it gets more into observation and assessment of your practice and some emerging topics that just, you know, we could have addressed in what inclusive instructors do, but it would probably get quite long. But we just, you know, it made it sense to have another book. So those two books basically came about from that. And I asked my colleagues to be a part of this because. Of several reasons. Um, Mallory's not part of this book, Mallory Sorrell, but she was part of the first book, but she was a colleague that I worked with. And she did a lot around inclusion at my college with me, like with, especially with our new faculty. And I knew a lot of great things she was doing in her class. (laughs) And then Khadija, you know, worked with me at, you know, at my current institution um, before she moved to Temple. And she, I knew that she had been doing a lot of wonderful things, especially when I'm thinking about creating welcoming, et cetera, classrooms. I thought, you know, what, what awesome contributions all of these folks would have. Derek's been a longtime collaborator for years, and we've worked together for a while, always doing really neat things in his class, thinking about active learning and all these kinds of things. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity to ask all the colleagues to actually come together and to write this really important work. And of course, it informs our practice, it informs my work, it informs you know others out, outside of our institutions as well which is great.
0: So I w- I want to follow up on this notion of the student voice, right? a, a big a, a central part of the the new book. Um you you touch on this a little bit um Tracy but but why is that student voice so important and and what are some of the things that you learned from the students that maybe you didn't learn from the previous study um talking to faculty.
2: You know, I think a thing that was important and things that emerged from the student surveys that we didn't see previously um, is Maximizing engagement from the first assignment. So when you're thinking about inclusive course design, we all think about the type of syllabus and how we want to engage with students. But in fact, the students resoundingly said from the first assignment throughout the course. And interestingly, with the first assignment, they highlighted having a high degree of engagement, but actually requiring little new mastery of content and this is always a trade-off right about the time that we spend in the classroom so um really relying on existing student knowledge. So, the scaffolding. So, that was very uh, prevalent. And thinking about positive feedback, how they mentioned that from the first assignment that can trigger both short-term and long-term positive impacts on on the student. Uh, And a thing that is interesting that did not come out when we talked with our faculty colleagues is group work. And so we know that we use this throughout higher education as active learning strategy, right? And it's, it's, it's deeper learning and teamwork. And so everybody knows about the the benefits of group work from an instructor perspective, but uh, the students, they thought that they appreciated group work that it was carried out throughout uh, the life of a course Mm. and it could help with engagement, but several students, Talked about the pitfalls. And in our previous book, we didn't have uh, from the student perspective pitfalls for these strategies. We all think we're doing great until we're not. Right. Um, and so some of the things that the students thought, and this was very enlightening for us is uh, especially for neurodivergent students and students that have disabilities thinking about uh, it can be a challenge with group work mm. and particularly students that have um autism spectrum disorder, and thinking about how some other students that may have uh, different challenges, such as those that would have uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, they liked group work, but they said that the composition was critical. So as an instructor, thinking about how you put together uh, the groups, they mentioned that uh, there actually was a classroom context where one of the students said they did not feel like the ADHD was a bearer because of the intentionality of the instructor uh, with constructing their groups. Uh, and there are several tools that you can use for that. And there were students who didn't specify their disability but they talk about the importance of the professor actively engaging with the groups. And so that was also very clear. So they said they felt supported and that uh, that kept them on track and accountable. And so I think that was really enlightening. And uh, a couple other things I'll, I'll highlight that came out in this book from the student's voice is student choice. So this concept of the, the personalized learning. So they loved flexible deadlines, uh, having individual Preferences, right, and assignments or exams, so that that choice, and also considering mental health needs. And I, I think the thing that was resounding is when we say disabilities, it's not just one type of disability, and that needs to be accounted for in when you're thinking about uh, you know, like designing the course from the student perspective. So uh, they talked about thinking about learning disabilities, but also visual physical, and sensory disabilities. There's a lot of quotes and suggestions for what instructors can do there. As also um, from neurodivergent students. And so, an example is uh, there's a student in a wheelchair, I remember, and they said that every student in the class sat in a different seat uh, in that course. That really made that student feel welcome. And so, I think that was really great. And uh, a couple of other things from a student voice. I think we all have heard that knowing their names is important. So that we saw in the first book, but uh, what we saw come out in this book uh, from their, from the student's voice was using chosen names was really, really important. Not and necessarily
0: the name on the roster you get from the registrar, yes. but the, the student's chosen name. Yeah.
2: Yes. We thought that was really important that uh, they mentioned there were some instructors who did that and some instructors who did not. And so the power of chosen name and and then finally, telling jokes. So <laughs> we know that okay. that was a double-edged sword. So <laughs> that many instructors use humor right in college and university classrooms, and so there's a lot of advocates for humor. Mm. Um, but we saw that uh, a pitfall to using jokes is mm. that everyone in the room may not uh, receive the joke in the same way, and some people could also be offended. So it was interesting in that way. There's like I love this instructor. They have the best jokes. I really feel welcome and has mm. a great rapport for relationship building. And there were some students that said I was very offended by some of these jokes. There. So um, so those are the things that we didn't expect, but definitely helped with hearing from the students. Tracy and Derek, anything you want to add to that?
3: Um, I mean, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more to some of these things, uh, probably in a little bit later today when we talk about and maybe talk a little bit about active learning and things like that. But I think, you know, the idea of student voice being impor- important is I kind of looked at, you know, this book and, and, the re- and the study that led up to it almost as a report card for the book, right? So we were hearing from instructors on what they thought they were doing and how they were doing so well. But now we get to hear from the students and they're kind of being able to, you know, turn the tables a little bit from a common course and grade our work towards inclusive instruction. So it was kind of interesting to see. And as Khadija mentioned, um, you know, see some of those pitfalls where instructors, you know, really were like, I'm killing it. I'm doing great. I'm, I am, you know, this, I'm an inclusive instructor and this is why. And we saw that some students said, yeah, that's true. And we saw some other students say, well, that wasn't necessarily inclusive for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really interesting.
0: Uh, So let's suppose, let's, let's take someone like me, right? So I've been teaching now for a couple of decades. Um, And I have colleagues kind of in the same boat who maybe got interested in active learning instruction 10, 15, 20 years ago, and they've built it into their their course, right? It's it's a kind of regular part of my teaching. But I feel like um, I might have some blind spots uh, because I think our understanding of students and their experiences as learners has changed in that time. And while kind of the instructional practices I adopted a decade ago might have been very uh, thoughtful and effective at the time, we may know more now. So what kind of advice would you give to someone like me or someone in that boat um, about kind of maybe how to update their practices a little bit in light of what you're learning about the student's experience?
3: Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I would do is I would, you know, applaud you or other instructors that are thinking about this and being thoughtful about it, right? You know, being willing to dive into active learning and, and aspects like that, there is research that shows Active learning can have very positive outcomes, right? Especially as opposed to exclusively a didactic lecture type course or things like that. It's more student centered and the the outcomes, um, the data shows the outcomes do improve. Further, again, that idea that, you know, as instructors, we're also lifelong learners. We have to be aware that, you know, we can learn more. There's more research being done. There's more being known and the demographics, the experiences, and our student population is constantly changing, right? It is not the student population today as it was 15 years ago. So the strategies, while there's things we can learn from them, they have to evolve with our student population as well. Um, so I think, you know, with specifically thinking about active learning, you know, I would say that while active learning, again, there's data out there that shows its benefits, not all active learnings created equal, right? So there can be good active learning and there can be bad active learning. Uh, The idea is that, you know, hopefully you're being thoughtful about it as an instructor. You're thinking about what are my learning objectives? What do I want to get out of this? But then you're incorporating the who are my students, right? That's a really important point. It's not just what are my learning objectives? Here's an activity that students can do to get there. But it's who are my students that I have in this cohort? And so engaging with the students that you have, learning about the students that you have up front In our uh, first book, what, what Inclusive Instructors Do, one of the things that we shared there was, was a, a form, um, a questionnaire called who's in class. That's something that could be used right at the beginning of class to get some basic um, aggregated information about your student population. And it comes anonymously, it's volunteer by the students, but it can let you know if students um, Have the ability to purchase a textbook for your course. If students have the ability to bring a device to the course, whether it's a smartphone or a laptop or things like that, if a student is a first generation student, if a student um, has a different primary language, um, a bunch of these different tools that all actually, when you have a better feel for what looks like and what your student population looks like, you can better approach how to create those active learning environments that are going to actually support their learning. Now, one of the other things that that came out, and this kind of ties back to some of what Khadija was speaking about earlier, is that oftentimes with active learning, we're incorporating group work or not. And and thinking about what are those group dynamics? Am I letting students maybe have a choice of whether they're working on this independently with a group? Do they choose their group or do I form that group? Um, You know, being aware of tokenizing individuals if, if the diversity in your classroom is such that that could be an issue with a group where there's one person, oh, I want to spread out all the people of this particular background. Well, that's not always the best way to go um, because there's there's certain feelings and emotions that may come with a student feeling tokenized within a group. So like Khadijah said, you know, places where student choice can be allowed within the active learning format is wonderful. Um, you know, there were several students that said that, you know, they were allowed to choose whether they worked independently on this project or with peers. And that allowed those that preferred to work with peers and that would benefit from that strategy to choose that strategy. Whereas those that might um, have reasons why an independent assignment is better, um, were able to work in that way. Further, um, other things that students said that were really interesting along the lines of active learning, if we think about, and I know you have some background, Derek, in thinking about how do I like use interactive polling and student response systems and things like that. Um, one really interesting quote from a student um, who identified as having a sensory disability was that um, there was this student polling mechanism that was happening in class. And and they mentioned that, um, and I'm gonna quote them here, we were going to do a active learning participation activity with some polls like answering prompts and the instructor shared them with her ahead of time so that she could put up her posted sticker or whatever she was doing virtually so that she could have time to do it Um, and where in the class there was a moment to do it she where she would not have felt comfortable she was able to share her opinion that way she didn't have the time crunch she goes on to mention was at her own pace so Thinking about some of those things, how our students may not have the same pacing within active learning that we anticipate within a classroom, are really important as well. So, you know, the takeaway message would be: active learning can still be a great tool in the classroom. You know, we encourage instructors to to center their their learning in the classroom around students, and active learning is a great way to do that. But, like you said, to be thoughtful about what they're doing, to not just stick necessarily with something that worked three classes ago, three semesters ago, this semester too, but to incorporate who are my students, what are they going to benefit most from to create the best active learning uh, environment that, that you can.
0: Hmm. Well, and I think that student choice is such a, a huge piece of what you just said there, because I've been in situations where I'm teaching, you know, a room full of students in a statistics course, and I'm, I'm asking them to turn to their neighbor and talk about a, a polling question and for some of them, it seemed to me in the past, they had never been asked to do something like that during a college class before. And so they aren't engaging in the peer discussion because they don't know how, they're, they feel uncomfortable, they think it's weird that Bruff is asking us to do this to begin with. Why doesn't he just like do some more problems at the board and I'll take notes, right? Like they're not used to active learning. But what I'm hearing from you is there may be a multitude of reasons why students aren't engaging in that kind of interaction. And yeah, maybe I need to encourage them to give it a try if they've if they've not done it, but at some point to let them make the call. Like is this something that I'm going to engage with regularly or am I am I actually better um better served if I can just process by myself when one of these, you know, polling questions comes up.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And and you know, as instructors, like we want our students to grow, right? And one of the ways that they grow is when they are pushed a bit out of their comfort zone. So yeah. It's not to, you know, student choice doesn't mean necessarily always let them pick the easiest path for them, right? It means give them some options. If there's a challenging path, let's be ready to scaffold them to success in that in that more challenging path for them. And again, what one of the some of the students said a uh, kind of across the board was they actually appreciated when there was diversity and variable means of instruction included. So, you know, yeah, today we're going to have you talk with your peers a little bit. Tomorrow, you know, we're going to do something that maybe has a little more of an independent bent. And mm-hmm. if you so choose, you know, maybe this can turn into a group project later on, final project where you have the choice of working in a group, working in a pair, or working as an individual. Um, but thinking about that scaffolding, thinking about that variety um, can be really important.
0: Now, Derek, you mentioned getting to know the particular group of students that you have in front of you. Um... And you mentioned a tool, the kind of who, what do you call? It? Who are you? <laughs> who's out there? The who's in class? Who's yeah, in the class. Who's, in, okay. who's in class. I was close. I was close. <laughs> um, but I gather the new book also has some other kind of ways to think about how you might better understand your students, how you might hear your own students' voices. Um, uh, Tracy, could you speak to that a little bit about kind of tools or processes for 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 getting a better sense of who who is in the class beyond that beyond that survey?
1: Yeah, sure. We do have a tool that's in the appendix of this book um, that really gets into kind of how's it going, like how's the class going along with regards to your inclusive teaching approaches. So that's definitely included there. Another tool that this book emphasizes, because we're also moving into here practice, like what are we doing in the class and getting Mm -hmm. feedback on that that can serve us uh, to be better in terms of our instruction is the Protocol for Advancing Inclusive Teaching Efforts, so the PATE. And that's a protocol that's published. Um, My group published it, and we've been using it actively in classrooms. We've done, you know, hundreds of observations with Mm -hmm. this particular tool. And this tool is really centered on different approaches that you can use in a classroom that are reliably kind of observed um, and accounted for. And those approaches are with the whole goal of building an inclusive, equitable classroom environment. And so one of the nice things that I hope readers will see in the book is that there is a lot of alignment between what the students say, and that's Mm. in the first parts of the book, and the types of behaviors that we're looking at in that protocol, the PATE, Mm. Um, and then also things from what inclusive instructors do. There's a lot of alignment, a lot of overlap. So, that particular tool, I think, is a really great strategy or a really great instrument for instructors to get some feedback about how it's going along the way. When we use this tool, I have some really interesting observations to see, you know, faculty in terms of how they see the data. They've never seen their classes that way, like the data represented for their teaching in that way, typically, and that's really interesting to them. Um, When they also see that, There's certain approaches that they might use more of. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. This is stuff like growth mindset language, right, on there. There's things such as equitable participation, um, using diverse visuals and media, giving diverse examples, as well as a lot of different science of learning things like assessing prior knowledge and all of that kind of thing. And so they get to kind of get a sense of the frequency of those particular instructional approaches in, in their classes. And that's really an interesting type of visualization to really think about teaching. And so in my work in educational development, we train students as partners on this tool. So I have student fellows who know, learn how to use a tool. I use it too, in classrooms as well. And they can actually give this really rich and interesting information to instructors. And instructors can also use it as a tool to set goals to make changes, get you know, get feedback, have be observed, be observed, and then um, you know, see the changes. So they can actually see that change in real time, and also get a sense of how their students are responding to it by other means, like if they do these mid kind of term assessments and things like that, that give that more formative feedback. So putting that all together in a package is a really great uh, way for an instructor to kind of advance their efforts in Hmm. many ways and i'll say that instructors come into the tool with it and for a variety of reasons so first i mentioned there's the goal directed nature of it right maybe i want to do more of this approach and i want to see change and i'll change and i'll you know move to the next class and i'll try to do that more there's also just i just want to know what am i doing like what kinds of inclusive teaching approaches am i doing i just want to know and then sometimes instructors will actually want to take a deeper dive into different approaches. And we talk about this in the book a bit, where if I see that I'm, you know, trying to encourage equitable participation, maybe it's not as high as I would like, you know, but what does that mean? Like, who's responding? How are they responding? So sometimes we'll also do Mm -hmm. subsequent kind of analyses, and they'll use a different tool. So that will actually get a deeper questions that they have as well. So this kind of gives them what I call it as a launching point. (laughs) Um, It kind of gives them that overview and they can take that information. They can make changes, but they can also go deeper right into specific areas that they really want to target. I recommend um, everyone go to inclusiveteachingvisualization.com. So that's inclusiveteachingvisualization.com. And that site has the paid and all the information about the paid. Anybody can try to do like the training and whatnot and try to learn it. There's, a lot of different training materials. And I recently just established a community for PAID, like a, a group. So they, you're always welcome. Anyone's always welcome to contact me. There's inst- This has been something used at other institutions as well. Um, and so they've been using it in a lot of, ver- in various ways to support instructors on their inclusive teaching approaches. But that's the PAID. And so that really gets us into figuring out, monitoring, assessing, and then using that as a reflective tool on our practice once we're trying to do, you know, these particular approaches or just knowing what we just do, you know, kind of in general, what we do in our classes.
2: So I'd like to chime in on what uh, Tracy mentioned. So I actually have used pate in my classroom uh, and just want to share a little bit about that experience because it was actually very enlightening for me. It was a it was a. And helpful. So, I'm a very uh, strategic thinker when it comes to the teaching. So, I spend a lot of time uh, relationship building and using verbal affirmations, which are some of the um, dimensions of the paint. And I was starting a new laboratory. And uh, this teaching laboratory was a cure, so a course-based undergraduate research experience, and it was based off of my laboratory research, which is cancer genetics. So it's a little complicated, <laughs> uh, and they're like genomics and all these fancy things. And I thought, you know, but I know they can do it. And I was really uh, interested in thinking about equitable participation, right? Because sometimes that can be can be a little daunting if you've never done research. And I was really um, interested in comprehension check. Because along the way, they lost. And so Tracy and her team came and they observed me. And what I loved is that it was um, quantitative enough for me to see. How much of my time was spent uh, in these different areas so that I could go back and I was able to actually modify my teaching, right? So I could be intentional about spending uh, more time making sure that I had uh, engaged every student. So they're in in lab groups, but how do I make sure that all of them so I would go around and and that was helpful and and different types of comprehension checks. So I would always do a recap at the beginning, but uh, I started stopping more throughout along the way of the lab section and back. So it was really helpful in uh, in that way, and it helped me modify the course. So it, was, it didn't take a lot of time, right, once I knew where to focus the efforts on. So, uh, so I thought that was really good speak to that, the benefits of pain.
0: Yeah, and now I gather you need to have someone who is willing to come and observe your class and use the protocol, right, right? Um, And so that speaks to something I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is the kind of culture of teaching at our institutions. Um, And at some places, having, at many places, having a colleague come and watch you teach means that you're up for promotion, tenure, or reappointment, and they're there to make sure that you're not screwing things up. And and that's not the most productive way to have a a colleague visit your classroom. Um, And so I guess, do you have advice for... Either individuals or maybe academic leaders who who might want to move to a place where like using Pate is actually uh, more normalized um, to, to, to help these efforts.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really key question for us to think about, and I can actually share this from the context of my work because I work with departments, and we they work and I partner with them in an academy that's focused on inclusive teaching. Mm. So the paint is actually embedded within the framework of what they do, most of the departments, some of them, it's other things, too, it depends on Mm. their goals. So the kinds of things that departments, I think, when I've seen it, you know, done, you know, really nicely is that oftentimes, they're going to gather some data about their students to start, they're going to um, have some kind of awareness of some challenges that, you know, they might be facing in their courses. So maybe they do a climate study. Uh, maybe they do student focus groups. They get some, some various types of information. Maybe they're just motivated because they're like, this just doesn't seem to be working based upon our, you know, individual classes and perceptions of what's going on, you know, ultimately overall. And so they want to make change and they're, they're really valuing that. So I think the first step that's really critical is that they value it. And they take time to really see and understand where challenges could be facing their students and their teaching, and then be intentional about the next steps. So one of the things that I've been working on with our particular instructors in our departments now, because I, I have an academy focus for anybody, because I want to make sure they have choice, too. They, they can come in, even if their department doesn't, as well as one that's focused on departments, and they have teams. And so in that team kind of model, we're thinking about, you know, creating this culture like this um, coming together and having discussions is huge. So this academy actually encourages that. But departments could also do that on their own, being very intentional about discussing these topics and issues and how they want to actually go about addressing them as well. That said, one of the things that I've also seen be very effective thinking about our next book is on student voice Um, and students' perspectives, I also embed student pedagogical partners with the departments. And we think about what are the students' backgrounds that are most useful to get that feedback. And actually, sometimes some of the student partners that we have and we hire in our center, they actually go back to their departments. They also tell them, you know, you should try out this program or something like that. So that's also another kind of uh, avenue in. And so those students, along the way, they'll give feedback. Um, and so I would encourage departments to actually ask their students. And also if they can have some students that can actually support them in thinking about their pedagogy, even actively along the way and giving feedback, we always make sure the students are not in their current classes or anything. So there's no like weird power differential <laughs> there. So that's always something we make sure of. Um, but that has been really helpful for departments to really think about the teaching that goes on and it empowers students and it, they already have voice, but it allows you know it to be heard, <laughs> right? Um, and in a way that can be meaningful and it can support departmental change. So those steps in goal setting and coming together, having discussions, making changes, and then you know incorporating things like Pate or other types of tools to kind of get a sense of where you're at. And so some of the departments in the end will also collect information on all their different courses, and then they'll come back to the department and they'll present it and have a conversation there. So I think that is a department's a really important unit where a lot of change can be made. They know their courses best, the types of things they're addressing, they can find out more with their students. So I would encourage that type of thing to happen. And institutionally, absolutely, we need to value this, right? If we're going to have diverse students come into our classrooms as an institution, it should be clearly a part of our strategic plans um, that it's really embedded that we have a culture of this and we're actually intentionally making sure that the students who come here thrive. So I would also just say that we need to definitely have larger conversations. This actually came out in some of our study. Uh, sometimes the barriers were we don't talk about it, right? We don't have professional development around it. And that's the the types of things that, you know, centers like mine can run too, um, or they can get it from other places, (laughs) right? Like this, there's a lot of knowledge out there, right? Around how to do this work and even disciplinary kind of knowledge as well. But those types of things I think are really critical and a commitment to doing it. And of course, it's really good if it's part of the rewards too, right? So if we can incorporate that in the reward system, we're demonstrating we value it, right? We, we truly value inclusive teaching. As an so inclusive teaching is effective teaching. We should see that if if instructors are getting evaluated for teaching as well, right? Like that it's part of that package of, effective teaching as well. So thinking about ways that you know this some this is more kind of embedded in our culture and how we do things, I think is is really critical. But we need to talk about it. We need to be intentional about it. And there's so many, you know, obligations that instructors often have, right? Faculty members, teaching research service, etc. There's a lot of balls to juggle. But we do also need to make some time for this, you know, these things, because this is critical, right? For for our students. And to the missions of our institutions.
0: I know there's a lot more we could unpack about this, but our time is nigh. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit of your book and and behind the scenes. I really appreciate you taking this time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so, Thank much.
1: You so much. Yes.
0: <laughs> and would one of you want to say something very brief about the event uh, later in February?
1: Sure. Yeah, so we would love for anybody to come out to our book launch. It is going to be Tuesday, February 27th from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern time. And it will be kind of in the webinar style. The wonderful thing about our book, too, is that you'll see that students were invited to write the foreword. They will be joining us. Uh, for that particular book launch as well, this is about students' perspectives, right? Like, so yeah. we really do want to have um, their voices, you know, kind of amplified. So we would love for you to, you know, join us and and hear more about the book, and we're we're excited of what it can do and what it will help, how it will help instructors um, think about their teaching.
0: That's great. That's great. Again, thank you all. This has been really, really lovely. That was Tracy Addy from Lafayette College. Derek Duby from the University of St. Joseph and Khadija Mitchell from Temple University. Together they are the authors of the new book Enhancing Inclusive Instruction, Student Perspectives and Practical Approaches for Advancing Equity in Higher Education, out in March 2024 from Rutledge. I always put a few links to relevant resources in my show notes, but you'll find a bumper crop of episode resources in the show notes this time. That's because Tracy and her colleagues are so good about publishing about their work. You'll find links to the Who's in Class survey the Inclusive Teaching Visualization Project, and more, including the February 27th book launch event. If you're listening to this episode, within a week or two of its release, it's not too late to register for that event. Also, I have to give a shout-out to the Tomorrow's Professor Today program at the University of Virginia. When I asked Derek Duby about his journey to become an educator, he said that that UVA program was instrumental in helping him become not just a researcher, but a professor, that is, someone who embraces his teaching identity. My friends at the UVA Center for Teaching Excellence have been running that program, Tomorrow's Professor, today, for grad students and postdocs since 2005. That's almost 20 years. There's been some buzz online lately about the lack of teaching preparation for PhD students heading into faculty positions, but UVA has been getting the job done for a long time now. Intentional Teaching is sponsored by UPSIA, the Online and Professional Education Association. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the EPSIA website, where you can find out about their research, networking opportunities, and professional development offerings. This episode of Intentional Teaching was produced and edited by me, Derek Bruff. See the show notes for links to my website, the Intentional Teaching newsletter, and my Patreon, where you can help support the show for just a few bucks a month. If you found this or any episode of Intentional Teaching useful, would you consider sharing it with a colleague? That would mean a lot. As always, thanks for listening.